Good afternoon. It seems especially appropriate to introduce the Yale Open Educational Resources Video Lecture Project to you all at a conference entitled Video Education and Open Content Best Practices. When I think about the open educational resources spearheaded by the Hewlett Foundation, I can't help but think that an appropriate credo might well be the motto of the King's Musketeers and Alexander Dumas, the Three Musketeers, one for all and all for one. There have been so many collective innovations made by so many of you here and by the, the institutions that you're a part of across the open educational resource landscape. And places like Yale owe you a great debt of gratitude because what you've done has obviously been foundational for the work that we are now embarked on in our pilot project this year. I, one has to ask oneself, since so many of you are also already uh, doing this kind of thing, what kind of contribution can Yale make? I don't have time to go into all the possibilities here, but I do want to highlight a few. One of those is video, which is appropriate to begin with, given, again, the title of this particular conference, because we have decided to uh, make available the core content of, our, of a certain number of arts and sciences courses at Yale through video. Faculty recruitment to encourage faculty to be willing to share their own intellectual property with the world, not a, not a, not a small challenge. The IP issues that so many of you have already addressed today and no particular reason for me to go into them in detail here, but especially for courses in the humanities and in the, and, and, and in the arts, this is an enormous challenge for us. And we have a variety of strategies that we're thinking about, in, including using our own collections or materials owned by faculty to make this easier as we move forward. Uh, we are also tackling a full arts and sciences curriculum, again, including humanities and arts courses. And we think we can be especially innovative uh, with regard to how we are dealing with those challenges in humanities and arts courses and look forward to sharing how we do that with all of you in the future. But I just, rounding the circle, uh, to begin where I already began on this, uh, to, to come back again to where I began on this particular slide, is at the end of the day, the question is, and so many of you have already addressed it this morning, what can we all do as one and how do our projects uh, work with each other's long term? With regard to Yale, again, as so many of you, we are looking at the whole question of the confluence of content and medium. Uh, the primacy of teaching in the Yale classroom and beyond the university gateways aligns extremely well with the aims of the Hewlett-sponsored Open Educational Resources. Reaching beyond the university to make Yale teaching assets more accessible also dovetails extremely well with Yale globalization overall. And we believe, we believe, we believe when we began this project, we continue to believe, and I hope we will continue to believe thereafter, that video is the optimum vehicle uh, for delivering this content globally. With regard to introducing today the Yale Open Educational Resources video lecture project, again, we are in our pilot year. We began this project 
on around July 1st. Uh, we are producing uh, seven courses this year, three in the fall, three in the spring, uh, across the curriculum of the university, uh, of Yale College at least. Uh, and uh, our goal over the next several years is to open the Yale classroom worldwide and free over the internet through a curriculum of 36 Yale College courses produced by Yale's Center for Media Instruction and Innovation and surrounded with the kind of rich array of open courseware elements that MIT and others have already developed. And I show you a view, obviously, into one of those classrooms that we intend to open up here. Given the topic of this particular conference, one we, we, I, I, it's important for me to ask here, as we have been asking ourselves in the course of this past year, why video? Why have we chosen uh, to use video to the extent that we are in this project? And I would give, there are many more, but I would give three primary reasons. First of all, the person. Uh, we believe that video allows us to go beyond the syllabus by featuring the real professor and his or her unique pedagogical approach and how educational materials can be variously presented and interpreted because obviously each faculty member is unique in terms of his or her personality, in terms of how he or she confronts the material and how he or she presents the material to the classroom and, and beyond the classroom. Secondly, the place. We think that video allows us to open the live college classroom and share worldwide the true wonderment of teaching and learning. Third, the learning process itself facilitate widespread auditing of full courses online, accessible through a variety of options, video, audio, and text transcriptions, all of which we are providing for all of these courses and by so doing to underscore that learning is not only about accessing instantaneous information, which I think an awful lot of students think it's what it's about these days to a certain extent because that information is so, e so easily accessible and so instantaneous, but to remind them that there's more to education than that, to teaching and learning than that. It is also about a more gradual intellectual evolution, which we think becomes very clear as one makes oneself, one's way uh, through these courses, through these lectures. And lastly, the creative remix that so many of you have commented about today, that video can also help us emphasize that one can go beyond auditing and actively interact with the content of a full course, picking and choosing what to view and what to use and remix in another context. With regard to best practices, I want to focus here just on content, although if you have any questions about the production side, my colleague Paul Lawrence, who heads Yale CMI2, is here. Uh, but it seems to me when one thinks about the content, uh, best practices content, the element of choice looms large. Uh, because as en when any of us embark on projects like this, we have to think about a wide variety of things and we have to make a selection among them. One of these, of course, I'll just isolate a few here. One of these is the building of a curriculum. How does one go about building a stable of, of materials, of course materials, to share 
worldwide? What subjects do you choose to emphasize? Which faculty do you turn to uh, to present these for you? Video quality, the whole question of video quality, how important is the quality of the video itself? It's more expensive to produce higher quality video. How important is it uh, to, to have the very highest quality video when you are uh, filming in a classroom and then sharing that again more globally? The whole question of faculty effectiveness. Faculty are not professional actors. They're not broadcast journalists. Uh, how effective can our faculty be in presenting material that they have a passion for, not only to their students, but also to a worldwide audience? And, uh, and are there strategies for making those videos more effective, those classroom videos more effective, both in content and presentation? Another issue that I think is of particular interest is the whole student side of the teaching and learning equation. At least at Yale, our counsel's office had encouraged us in the first year of this pilot uh, not to film the students. Uh, because of course, especially in very large courses, 100, 200 students, you have to get permission from every student if you're going to feature them. It's also more expensive because we microphone the faculty member, but we can't microphone all of the students in terms of capture all of that material. And I think as I look at the videos that we've produced, um, you know, there's a very, it's a real focus on the faculty member who's doing the presenting. And we'll show you a couple of clips today. And when you look at these, in some respects, they're wonderful because they're so immediate. When you're sitting in, in, you know, in front of your screen and you see that faculty member up close and personal, you get a real sense of that, of that personality, of that mind. Uh, and of the material that they're presenting without the intervention of the students. At the same time, as we all know, again, teaching and learning, faculty and students go together. And there's that fruitful exchange that takes place in the classroom, even in some lecture courses, not in all lecture courses. And we haven't tried to capture that this year. Uh, but as we move forward with this project, it's just an issue that's on my mind and one that I'd like to continue to think about. Uh, the teaching, this uh, teaching and learning equation between faculty member and students. The IP challenge, as I mentioned before, is, is significant for all courses, obviously, that one captures, but uh, especially for the humanities and the arts. I had a sense of that as we went into this. It's become clear that that is absolutely the case as we try to produce these materials. Uh, but we have tried not to be daunted by that. We feel it's very important to have as many humanities and arts courses as we do uh, sciences and social sciences. And so we are forging ahead with that. But the challenges are, again, considerable. For that reason, I chose to focus today, although we are producing courses in physics and uh, astrophysics, black holes, and political philosophy and psychology and so on. Uh, it seemed to me, and Peter and I spoke about this together, that it might be particularly valuable to feature a couple of the humanities courses that we are taping this semester. So we've chosen two to show you, two case studies in the humanities. Uh, I'm going to show you a couple of clips, one from each. Uh, the first is the uh, introduction to the Old Testament taught at Yale by Professor Christine Hayes. Uh, and her course, you know, you would think that the Bible, written as long ago as it was, would be the sort of thing that one would not need permission to publish. But of course, as we all know, uh, there are lots of different translations of the Bible. 
And you also know, or at least we, this is true at Yale, that faculty, and, and I think this is as a faculty member myself at Yale, you know, I think it's extremely important that we let our faculty lead the pedagogical, I mean, it's their decision pedagogically what translation they want to use. I'm not going to dictate uh, to faculty members that, you know, that you must use this translation because this one is going to be easier for us to permission. I want them to be able to use exactly what they think is pedagogically correct. So in the case of Chris Hayes, she happened to have chosen a translation of the Bible that's one of the more difficult ones to permission. So we have, you know, a, a significant permissioning challenge with this course. We are, you know, we are working hard at it. We want to do it in the Creative Commons way. Uh, and we also want to do it without having to pay anything significant, if anything at all, for the, for the uh, materials. And it, it's actually the conversations have been ongoing and they're going well. Uh, but this is a case of a humanities course, again, where there's quite a lot of quoting. And I've chosen, in particular, a, a, a clip where she talks about Jonah and the whale. She talks about Nineveh. Uh, but she also has a fairly significant uh, quotation on sackcloth. And I just wanted uh, to uh, contrast that with Shelley Kagan's course, Professor Shelley Kagan, who's in the philosophy department at Yale and has ex two extraordinary courses. One is called Life and one is called Death. And uh, we are capturing his course on death and the issues that arise, as I mentioned here, when we confront our own mortality. He focuses in the clip that I'm going to show you on the Cartesian argument that the mind is a separate entity from the body. And he talks about Descartes. Uh, but Shelley Kagan, unlike Chris Hayes, uh, doesn't, he, he, he engages with this material, but he doesn't quote extensively from it, which has, of course, been wonderful from our point of view, uh, because he's, it's, it's much less of a challenge uh, for us to film and to reveal uh, this extraordinary course. So let me show you just, uh, let me see if I can click from here, I think I can, to these two clips and share with you really the first viewing beyond a few of us at the university of the clips from the Yale class. In, in response to Jonah's prayer, God orders the fish to spew Jonah out onto dry land. In chapter three, Jonah gets his second chance. God calls him again, and in contrast to his first response, this time, Jonah sets out for Nineveh at once, and he proclaims God's message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And then comes the, the shocking element in the story. Chapter 3, verses 5 to 10. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and great and small alike put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he had the word cried through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, no man or beast of flock or herd shall taste anything. They shall not graze and they shall not drink water. They shall be covered with sackcloth, man and beast, and shall cry mightily to God. Let everyone turn back from his evil ways and from the injustice of which he is guilty. Who knows but that God may turn and relent. He may turn back from his wrath so that we do not perish. God saw what they did, how they were turning back from their evil ways, and God renounced the punishment he had planned to bring upon them and did not carry it out. So idolatrous Nineveh believes God and humbles itself before God, hoping to arouse his mercy. And in another humorous touch, we read that even the animals are wearing sackcloth, right? They're fasting and, and crying out to God. So from the greatest to the very least, the inhabitants of Nineveh turn back from their evil ways, and God's mercy is, in fact, aroused. That's one, and then I'd like to turn to Shelley Kagan, and you'll, you'll see also from these what we all know, 
which is how different faculty can be in, in terms of, again, their personalities, their approach to their, their material, and the way that they uh, choose to present. Try to imagine my mind, says Descartes, without my body. Easy. From which it follows that my mind and my body must not be one thing. They must, in fact, be two things. That's why it's possible to imagine the one without the other. So this Cartesian argument seems to show us that the mind is something separate from, distinct from, not reducible to, not just a way of talking about my body. So it's got to be something extra above and beyond my body. It's a soul. That's what Descartes argued. And as I say, to this day, philosophers disagree about whether this argument works or not. I don't think it does work. And in a second, I'll give you a counterexample. And then, having given the counterexample, I mean, that is to say, what I'm going to give is an example of an argument just like it, or at least an argument that seems to be just like it, where we can pretty easily see that that argument doesn't work. And so something must go wrong with Descartes' argument as well. Thank you.